I want to make some announcements and then uh, we will, I'll remind you as to what we started last week and we'll continue today in the next couple of weeks. This afternoon at 2.30 is our periodic congregational meeting. We call it family meeting. I mentioned during the first hour announcements that I know those are not the most exciting things to attend. It's in the middle of the afternoon. And it doesn't bother me a whole lot that uh, folks don't want to attend those for the reasons I just gave. Uh, But sometimes we have things where we have to get church approval officially. And that requires a quorum according to our bylaws. uh, And we have that today. We've got a couple of things we need to vote on. One is a budget for next year. But also, the leadership team is proposing a couple of our men for ordination next year, and we need the church's approval to proceed with that as well. So those are two important items. If we don't have a quorum, then any vote we take is not official. We don't need a bunch of people to make it official, but we need enough. So uh, if you are not accustomed to showing up for the family meeting, if you could make it at 2.30 this afternoon, that would be great. Uh, normally, these last about an hour. And then we're done. And uh, if you can't, you know, we understand, but just uh, hear that plea. We've got to have enough people to make it official. Ladies, this coming Friday is the annual uh, Ladies Christmas Social. It'll be at 7 o'clock in this room. You see that preparations are already going for that. Not just that, the whole Christmas season by the beautiful decorations headed up by uh, Sandra Gorham. Sandra, if you see her... Make sure you thank Sandra for the great job she always does with that. But ladies, that's uh, this Friday at uh, 7. Now related to that, men, uh, after our Wednesday classes, if some of you could stick around, probably not more than 15 minutes it will take for us to transform this room into the setup for the ladies' uh, social that will be two days later. So this Wednesday, those of you that are here for the classes, guys, after the classes end, if you could come in here and... Uh, We'll organize the uh, setup, and as I say, it should not take more than 15 minutes. We can get it kicked out pretty quickly if we get a number of guys in here for that. Ladies' Christmas Social this Friday at 7. The next day, Saturday, 9 a.m., men, we have a a breakfast uh, for you guys. Uh, Rich schedules those about three or four times a year. Always a good time and uh, always very good food. I'm no kidding. I'm always amazed that it's good food. Because the men make it, and uh, I remember the first time I came to one of these, and I was really skeptical about how the food was going to be, or whether or not I was going to eat any of it. Uh, but it looked good, and turned out I imbibed, and it, and it tasted good as, as well, and so I've been coming ever since. The Adult Christmas Fellowship is a week from Saturday, the 18th, so it's an adult uh, event, as the name suggests. That'll be at 6.30 on that uh, Sunday evening. And in the program, it tells you what we're asking you to bring for the White Elephant Gift Exchange. There's a crazy hat and silly socks and all that stuff. Prizes for that. We always have a good time with it. Let me uh, tell you what the schedule is for this hour, this second hour for the next few weeks, because we are between series. A couple of weeks ago, I completed the parenting series in here. Dr. Combs was doing a series with those of you that were not in parenting through Second Corinthians. And then uh, the Crossroads College and Career young people were in a separate class. So for 10 weeks, we had three classes going on. Now we're all back uh, together. And in between, before the holidays, we just have a few empty uh, weeks. And I get to, as I said last week, talk about whatever I feel like. I'll remind you as to what that is that I started last week in a minute. But on Christmas Day, which is a Sunday this year, 
we will not have this class. We will just have one service on that day at 11 o'clock, but it will be our worship service. No Sunday school, no Discovering God Hour. Same thing for the following week on New Year's Day. And then going into January, for the four Sundays of January, from January 8th through the 29th, we will have two uh, adult classes going on. One is our newcomers orientation. That's for people who are new to our church. You want to know more about us. We provide this class for that reason. You will be with me in a room just outside those doors in one of our classrooms. We'll go through a booklet of material to tell you about who we are and where we came from and what we believe and what we hope to achieve in the future. It's all designed to give you information to help you decide as to whether or not this would be the place that God would have you to serve and grow. Uh, No obligation for you to join our church. There's no pressure for you to do that if you attend that class. So if you're new here, I encourage you to mark that January the 8th and then those four Sundays there, the three Sundays after that, total of four in January at the 11 o'clock hour for the newcomers class. But at the same time, for those four weeks, we're going to have our members class. And we always do that. We always have the newcomers and then we have a what we call a new members class for those who have joined since the last one for you to get acclimated and assimilated and take a deeper dive into our church as now new members. But this time it's going to be a little different. We're just calling it the members class, not new members class. And Larry Castle is going to be in here with everybody who's not with me and the newcomers. So all of you that are members of our church, even if you've been for a very long period of time and you went through the members class a long time ago, he's revamped that. And that's why we want everybody to be able to go through it for those those four weeks. So we'll have both of those going on from the 8th to the 29th in January. And then we'll start a new series in here on February the 5th on anger. Uh, how to be good and angry is the uh, is the title. How to be good and angry. And uh, I have encountered lots of counseling situations over the years where anger on the part of one or both of a married couple, for example, is is at root. And so I think this could be helpful uh, to you. So plan on that February the February the fifth. We will start that series. All right. So that's what's coming coming on and coming up. Uh, last night we had a fundraiser here and uh, a good time and lots of people here for the fundraiser and a raffle for some gifts and we came and we put tickets in to raffle for different things. My wife asked me which of the uh, bowls we should put our ticket in for the raffle and she said just pick one and we'll put all of ours in that one. So there were things like Applebee's and bunches of restaurants there and I said Nemo's. That's Nemo's is a sub place here in Flat Rock. So Nemo's. But my wife didn't do what she had said. She didn't just put them in the Nemo's basket. Turns out she put them in another basket and we won for the other basket. We won. A three-month subscription to the Y. So not only don't I get the fattening stuff that comes from Nemo's, now I'm supposed to go and work out at the Y. Somehow, I don't even, I think that was rigged. I think it was rigged to send a message to me. Brown, this is a, this is a sign from the Lord that you need to go to the, go to the Y. Alright, today is our second of four weeks on what I call a matter of interpretation. And we are going through Uh, principles of interpretation to guide our study of the Bible. 
Last week, we went through one of four principles that we want to see. I think I'll complete the other three today. Uh, but uh, lest those of you who have heard me do these principles before, which if you have taken our master plan for life class, you have heard because we have that as part of our community institute. So these issues are very important for everybody to know. Lest you check out of the whole series, I'm doing this for a particular reason. And the reason I alluded to last last week, uh, and that is, I just gave an example of how if you don't have these kinds of principles to guide your interpretation, then you can get the Bible's meaning wrong. And the example I gave was from Matthew uh, chapter 2 and verse 15, Matthew 2:15. Now, you know your Bible is laid out with the Old Testament and the New Testament, and most of you know that the New Testament starts with Matthew. And Matthew 2, then, is right there at the beginning. And the beginning of the New Testament starts with Jesus and the birth of, birth of Christ. The Messiah has come, the one who, in the first part of your Bible, had been predicted and awaited and longed for, has now, has now come. And you come to chapter 2 of Matthew, and there the narrative tells us that Herod had heard about this would-be king that has been born uh, through the three magi that had come to see him. And he gave them instructions. Find, when you find him, you come back and report to me and tell me where he is. But they were tipped off that his purpose, Herod's purpose, was to, to kill the baby. And so they did not return and did not tell him. And in a vision, Joseph was told about Herod's uh, evil plans and told to leave with Mary and the baby and go to Egypt. And in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15, it then says this, And so was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. Quoting now from the Old Testament, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So Mary and Joseph and Jesus move from Bethlehem to, uh, to, uh, to Egypt. And then later come back and Matthew says, and so was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. And if you look at who the prophet was who said that, it turns out to be Hosea in your Old Testament, Hosea chapter 11. And if you look at Hosea chapter 11, as I said last week, you'll find nothing in there that hints at a prediction about something that's going to happen centuries in the future. About the Messiah or whether Messiah's family is going to move or come back from or any of that. That's not what Hosea 11 is about, where that sentence is found. If you look at Hosea chapter 11, it's the context is Hosea simply reminding the people of something that had happened in the past, not something that was going to happen in the future. And that thing that happened in the past was the Exodus, that indeed we all know that in the book of Exodus, second book of your Bible, is recorded that God, with a mighty hand, brought his people out of, out of Egypt. And so Hosea is reminding them of this. But Matthew says, Jesus and Joseph and Mary, moving to Egypt, fulfills what was spoken by the prophet, when the prophet wasn't even predicting anything. So what is up with that? Now, after we were done last week, I laid that out. Some of you came to me 
I asked the question, in effect, what is up with that? And some of you came with me and said, you've left us hanging. And uh, I think I will end up leaving you hanging again today. But I'm trying to tell you that there is method to my madness here. There's a reason that I'm going through these principles. And for some of you, this is these principles you have heard before. But I want you to have those cemented. And then I want to apply those not only to this issue of Hosea being quoted by Matthew the way he is, but also some other things that then become very important for how you see the overall Bible. Things like, what does Israel mean? What did Israel mean in the Old Testament? And how is the word Israel used in the New Testament? How's the New Testament using Israel? And we will see together in the next few weeks that depending on whether or not you apply these principles, you can wind up with Israel being something in the New Testament that it never was in the Old Testament. So it's important to have these principles, and then we will apply these principles to Hosea and to what the Bible says about Israel and what the Bible says about what's to come, where the church fits into that and so forth. Okay, So I just ask for your patience as we, as we uh, do that. Now, last week, we saw the first of these four principles. And this first principle was based on putting every passage in its context. And we're going to see that every passage has three contexts to it. The first one is the historical context. That's what we saw last week. That you place every passage in its historical context, which means look at the passage in light of the purpose for which it was written. Look at it in light of the time that it was it was written the geography, where it was written, and then the culture uh, of those to whom it was written. So the purpose and the time and the geography and the culture, all of those make up the historical context of a given of a given passage. And out of looking at historical context, we came up with our first of four principles of interpretation, and it was this. A text, a passage, cannot mean what it never meant. A text cannot mean today what it never meant when it was written. Now, I think when if you were here last week, and if you weren't, you can listen online to what I said. And I think if you listened last week or you listen online, you'll buy that. That a text cannot mean what it never meant. Of course, a passage means what it meant at the time it was written. But the problem comes in then, you buy that, but then you read Matthew doing this with Hosea, and you go, well, maybe Hosea meant something bigger than Hosea even knew. That maybe Hosea chapter 11 means something other than Hosea just referring to the Exodus back then. And once you start doing that, you've now violated this principle, a text cannot mean what it never meant, that you agreed to a little bit ago. So I'm just encouraging you, stand fast in agreeing to that principle. A text does not mean today or any other time what it didn't mean at the time it was written. It means today what it meant then. Okay. So we saw that principle last week. Now I want us to see the other three of these principles of interpretation by looking at the other two 
types of context that every passage has to be placed in. There's historical context, but every communication also has a literary context, a literary context. That is, in addition to the historical setting, the way we interpret a passage is influenced by what kind of literature the particular book is. Because in your Bible, you've got 66 books. And of the 66, they're not all the same type. You know that. But I just remind you of some of the different types that are represented in those 66 books. Two-thirds of the 66 are what is called narrative. Narrative. Two-thirds of your Bible is narrative. That is, two-thirds of the Bible is someone who's writing who's narrating what happened to other people. So that's what we mean by narrative. You know, and you look back at the Old Testament and you see that pretty, you see that pretty clearly. You know, you, you go to uh, Genesis chapter 11 and you got the Tower of Babel. And Moses, who wrote that, is narrating what happened to the people at the Tower and, and all of that. And then you, in Genesis chapter 12, start with the story of Abraham and then Abraham's uh, progeny, uh, Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And you see that whole thing go forward. You see Joseph focused on at the end of Genesis from chapters 37 to the last chapter in Genesis, chapter 50. The second book of your Bible, the Exodus, is narrating God's work in bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt numbers, all of this is narrating, right? And this is Moses narrating. But then you've got lots of narration, narrative literature in the Bible, including in the New Testament. The book of Acts, fifth book of your Bible, is Luke, who wrote it, narrating what happened in the early church. It's a, it's a history of what happened in the early church. So one type of literature in the Bible is narrative, and in fact, that's a prominent type. Two-thirds of your Bible is, is narrative. But then there are other kinds. And let me give you, let me give you some examples. Um, there are proverbs. That's another type, a proverb. We've got a book by that name, the book of Proverbs. And proverbs have particular characteristics to them. And so you have to interpret proverbs that way. One of the characteristics of a proverb is this. That it is a general truth, not a legal guarantee. Proverbs were never been designed to be a legal guarantee. So the example I often use from Proverbs is chapter 22 and verse 6. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, if that's a legal guarantee, what does that mean? That means, parents, if you do it right, it turns out right. Which also means, conversely, if you don't do it right, they don't turn out right. And if they turned out right, it's because you did. And if they didn't turn out right, it's because you didn't. That would be the legal guarantee approach. But a proverb is a general truth. Generally, it is the case that children follow in the steps of what they were, what they were trained to do. So train them in the way they should go. But even the Bible elsewhere contradicts the legal guarantee approach to that verse. In Ezekiel chapter 18, the Bible says, 
A violent man will have a righteous son, and a righteous man will sometimes have a violent son. So it's not the case that righteous people who do it right always it turns out right. So does that mean that the Bible has an error in it? No, because Proverbs were never designed to be legal guarantees. But if you interpret it that way, okay? So that's one type of literature, a proverb. you got narratives. you got poetry. You know, in the book of Psalms, poetry and songs, and the way poetry is done in Hebrew, which is the language of your Old Testament, it's done in what's called parallelism, not rhyming. You know, that's the way we do it. That's why our songs are so stupid. Because we're just trying to find something that rhymes. But they had parallelism. They would have one line, and then the next line would be parallel to it in some way. So it would, it would be uh, often parallel by saying the opposite of what the first line said, or sometimes explaining further what the first line said. But the first line and the second line go together in Hebrew, what's called parallelism, Hebrew, Hebrew poetry. So you got narratives, you got proverbs, you got you got poetry, you have parables. Jesus spoke in parables, and parables are stories that have one major moral to them. You're supposed to get one big thing out of this story. And all of the details that go with the story don't represent something else. So you don't look at a parable like the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And Jesus says there was a certain rich man. Remember that? And then he, he fared well. He had everything he wanted to eat. But then there was this beggar Lazarus who got the crumbs that fell from the table of, of the rich man. You all remember that? That's a parable that Jesus is giving. Now he's making a, a, a point through that whole parable and you're not supposed to get focused on the details like many preachers and teachers do. There have been sermons about what the crumbs represent. Or the four, I'm not making this up, the four legs of the table. We got the table, you got the crumbs, and I'm telling you, there's some preaching that goes on that when you listen to it, it really gets whomped up. And so... Context destroys some otherwise good preaching until you actually look at what it means. So you're not supposed to be looking at what the legs of the table are and the crumbs and all of that. A parable is designed to give you this, uh, this one truth that's being hammered home in that way. you got the letters of your New Testament, of course. Paul wrote 13 of those, 27 in your New Testament. Those are more straightforward for us because they're direct, declarative kinds of sentences and, and truth that is given and then applied. But you've got that kind of literature as well. And then you've got uh, apocalyptic literature. That's like the book of Revelation and uh, parts of Daniel. And that has a lot of symbolism in it by design. That's what kind of literature that, that it is. So you've got all of these different kinds of literature, and when you interpret then one of the books of the Bible, you want to take into account what kind of book am I interpreting. So how does that matter to us? Well, Proverbs, I gave an example of that, but here's another one. 
narrative is narrating what happened to other people. It's, to put it another way, it's describing what happened to other people. And it's not prescribing what needs to happen to you. It's describing what happened to other people, not prescribing what needs to happen to you. For example, Acts 3. Remember the book of Acts is this history book. It's narrating what happened in the early church. Acts chapter 3 begins, Peter and John go to the temple. And Peter and John go to the temple and they find a man there who was born lame from birth and he's begging and Peter says to him silver and gold have I none but such as I have I give to you and then Peter says in the name of Jesus of Nazareth take up your mat and walk and the guy is healed no tricks no cameras on TV with the televangelist trying to show you that the leg grew when it really didn't all of that. This guy's really healed. He says, get up and walk. And this guy gets up and walk. The apostles are able to do miracles. And they do one. But if you read Acts chapter 3 and you don't get that narrative is describing what other people did, not prescribing what you do. If you don't get that, then you can easily read Acts chapter 3 and go, look at that. Peter tells people to get up and walk. I should be telling people to get up and walk. Well, if you do that, let me make a prediction. Nobody gets up and walks because you don't have the power to heal people. And the reason you don't have the power to heal people is because you're not an apostle. And apostles were select people. And the book of Acts is actually, the full title is the Acts of the, the Apostles. And it's showing you what the apostles did. And so it's accurately describing what they did, but it's not in narrative prescribing what you do. Obviously, the Exodus is not prescribing what we do. You know, Adam and Eve in the garden, you see what they did, and you're not going to be in the garden. You don't have a couple of trees that are special that you're supposed to deal with. You don't have any of that going on. It's describing what happened to them. Now, are there principles out of every piece of that that you can apply to yourself. Absolutely. Because all scripture is useful. But understand that narrative is narrating what happened to other people. Describing what happened to them. Not prescribing. And our charismatic Pentecostal friends don't get that. So every time they read that the apostles did something. <laughs> or some people did something in the New Testament. They immediately conclude we're supposed to do it. Because they're not treating narrative as the way narrative is designed to be treated. So all communication has a literary context. And so interpret it in light of what kind of book it is of the Bible. And then also interpret it in light of whatever kinds of literary devices are used within it. And what I mean by that are things like figures of speech. So for example, in John 10... Uh, Jesus said, I am the gate. Now, is Jesus a gate? Jesus is using a figure of speech, isn't he? If you say, uh, when you order pizza and you take a bite and the cheese is kind of lukewarm, but the sauce is really hot underneath, 
And you bite into it and you go, my mouth is on fire. Your mouth is not really in flames. It's a figure of speech. And the Bible allows for and uses figures of speech. So those are literary devices that are used. And that's why we often say we don't do literal interpretation as much as we do normal interpretation. Because literal could be misunderstood to mean you take everything literally, including figures of speech. But they're not designed to do that. You interpret it normally, which allows for figures of speech. Okay, So every communication has a literary context. And this yields a second principle. The first principle from last week was a text cannot mean what it never meant. The second principle now is all texts are not alike. All texts, all books of the Bible, and all sections of books of the Bible are not alike. And so you have to interpret them according to principles that are relevant to that particular type. A text cannot mean what it never meant. All texts are not alike. And those both come from two of the three types of context that you want to set the Bible in. It's historical context and it's a literary context. And now a third and final type of context. All scripture has historical and literary context, but also grammatical context. Grammatical. Grammar. Grammatical. That is the words, the sentences, the paragraphs, all that kind of mundane all that kind of mundane stuff. But it has a grammatical grammatical context. So, uh, that means that we want to interpret the Bible in light of its language, in light of its grammar. But we've got a little bit of a problem because we speak English and the Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible was written in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. A little bit of Aramaic, a tiny bit in the Old Testament. So you got Hebrew and Greek. And if you don't know Hebrew and Greek, then you've got this English translation for you. And so you want a good English translation. You want an accurate English translation. You want an English translation that you can read and understand. Okay, So we use the NIV here, New International Version. It's not the only accurate version. There are several accurate versions, but we use the NIV because it's accurate and understandable, both. And we want both of those. So we recommend that to you. And if you don't have an NIV, we've got some that we give away for free uh, every Sunday. And you can leave here with your very own copy of the, of the NIV, okay? And I preach from it uh, every week. So you interpret in light of its language and the translators then help you with that if you have an accurate translation from Greek and Hebrew into, into English. Now one factor to bear in mind when you're interpreting the language of Scripture is this. That all languages are, and here's a fancy term, univocal. Univocal. Uni means one. A unicycle has one wheel. So, you know, unity means being as one. So univocal, vocal means voice. So univocal means one voice. So language is designed, grammar is designed to speak with one, with one voice. So a word can only mean one thing in a given context. Now, you know... We all know that words can mean more than one thing in different contexts, right? 
But it only means one thing in this context. That's why when you go to a dictionary and you look up a word, the word will most often have more than one possible meaning. At this time and in this language, that's why the dictionary has to be updated because at this time in this language, this word is used these four possible ways. But what determines which of those four is being used? The context. And in that context, it means one thing. Not two, not three. It means one. Now, if that were not the case, then you would only need one word to have a whole language. Because that word could mean anything in any particular context. We have lots of words, and depending on how they're used, they might have more than one possible meaning but they only have one meaning in a given in a given context. So you interpret it in light of its grammar, uh, in light in light of its language, and you interpret each passage to get to that. What does that word mean? You interpret it all in light of its larger logical units. Larger logical units. Now, what do I mean by that? You take grammar and just break it apart. So forgive me for the next couple of minutes as you are back, transported back into grammar school. And you shudder, some of you, because you remember being kicked out of class. You remember failing English, whatever it was. But just for a moment, you remember this. That words don't stand alone, but they are part of sentences. And sentences are most often used with other sentences in the next larger unit, which is what? A paragraph. A paragraph. And the distinction of a paragraph is this. A paragraph is supposed to start another thought. Another thought that contributes to the overall thought. That's what it's supposed to do. That's not what it did when you were writing papers. When you were writing papers in school, you would be writing and you'd be writing and you'd have a stream of consciousness and then you'd go, I think it's time for me to indent. (laughs) And so you start a new paragraph. There's no particular logic to it. You just start a new one. But what it's supposed to do is start and contain a new thought. Which means, as you interpret the Bible now, you want to take the sentences, not in isolation, but in the context of the thought that's being communicated in the paragraph. So if you were here first hour today, Philippians 1, we did looked at four verses, 27 through 30. Now, if you were to look at that, you would see that those verses in the NIV are a paragraph. Most often, almost without exception, whenever I'm choosing how many verses we're going to cover in a particular message, it is one paragraph. Now, sometimes it'll be two paragraphs, but it's never, I can't ever think of it being one and a half paragraphs or a half of a paragraph. It's the whole thing giving the whole thought of that section and how it contributes to the overall So when I say larger logical units, the word means something and only one thing in that sentence. But that sentence means something in this paragraph. 
And that paragraph means something in the next larger logical unit. And that is the whole book. In this case of Philippians. How does that fit into what Paul is communicating in the whole of Philippians? And then I would give you one for the Bible, one last larger circle, logical unit. You've got the word, the sentence, the paragraph, the book, and then you've got the whole Bible. Because that book fits into the body of the whole Bible. So how does that fit in with what has been said in the Bible previously or in other places? How do those correlate? Okay. So you interpret it in light of its larger its larger logical units. Uh, so I would encourage you to have an NIV or a Bible that lays out the print in paragraphs because they're doing you the favor of helping you to think in paragraphs. You say, don't all the translations do that? No. Um, I don't know if any of the King James versions do this. Any of the printed versions have arranged the King James translation into. I don't, none of them that I've seen do this. All of the verses, each individual verse looks like its own paragraph. And you've got to remember, when the Bible was written, how many verses were there? None. These are added years later. There were no chapter divisions and there were no verse divisions. So you don't want to make the verse, each verse, look like it's its own paragraph. Because if you do that, then each verse will become to you a thing that kind of stands by itself. And this is how people quote verses out of context. We're going to get to Philippians chapter 4 eventually. And verse 13 is a famous needlepoint verse, cross-stitch verse. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And, you know, you hear people apply that in all kinds of ways. We're, you know, Michigan's going to beat Ohio State, says the Christian place kicker. Because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Well, Jesus didn't come through in double overtime, apparently, Okay. <laughs> And the refs don't know Jesus either, and so that doesn't help. (laughs) But people make application of, I can do all things through Christ. But you look, when we get there, we're going to look at all the things that I can do through Christ. And it's in the midst of, I know what it's like to be well-fed or hungry. I know what it's like to be in plenty and in want. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's the context. So if you have every verse as its own thing, then, you know, now some of you got to go home and take cross-stitch off your walls and all of that. I understand. But you get kind of bumper sticker theology that just takes a verse and often takes it out of context. So you interpret in light of its larger logical units. So the first principle then of interpretation is a text cannot mean what it never meant. The second one is all texts are not alike. And this yields then a third one. A text has only one meaning. A text has only one meaning. It has one meaning and whatever it meant is what it means today. In order to get at that, you've got to recognize that all the texts in the Bible are not alike. And then there's a fourth principle, and we'll get that in the remaining 30 seconds we have left. 
And that is uh, that the Bible communicates, here's the fourth and final principle, the Bible communicates a unified message. Even though there's 66 books by 40 different authors, human authors, it communicates a unified message. Now, why can that be true? Even though you got 40 different authors writing at different times, sometimes centuries apart from each other, from different backgrounds, some writing in Greek, some writing in Hebrew, how could you possibly get 40 different authors to communicate a unified message? Well, here's how. Behind all of that, superintending all of that, overseeing all of that, is one author. So that what the human author wrote is precisely what God wanted written. So that now, even though you've got 40 different authors, they still communicate this unified message because God is overseeing the, the, uh, the process. Well, that means then some things for us. Those are the four principles. And they come out of putting the Bible in its three contexts, historical, literary, and grammatical. And then you get this fourth one that just is, comes from the fact that God is, the, is, is behind everything that was written in the Bible ensuring that it has this unified message. So if I see a passage in the Bible that appears to contradict another passage that I read somewhere else in the Bible, can the Bible have contradictions? If it's got one ultimate author, God, then it can't have contradictions unless God communicates contradictions. And if you believe in a God who communicates contradictions, we're hopeless. If God can say, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But later, in the day you eat of it, you won't die. If God can say that I'm predicting that the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to come in this way to these people and do these things... If he can change his mind about that or contradict that somewhere later, we've got big problems, don't we? Now, those are all things that have already happened. What about the things in the New Testament that haven't happened yet? Or actually, a number in the Old Testament that haven't happened yet. If God can contradict, then what's to keep him from saying, I changed my mind about that, I'm not doing it. And you see, in the nature of God, God cannot do that. In the very nature of God. So if God is behind it, then I have complete confidence and you should have complete confidence that nothing in the Bible is going to contradict itself. So what do you do then with that passage that looks different than one you were reading a week earlier? You're going to go about the work. This is what you should do. You don't look at it and go, well, I guess the Bible just contradicts itself. You look at it again. And you go, you know, I need to take a closer look at that. Because what I thought it meant from the first reading can't be what it really means because that would contradict what it clearly says over here. And every time you do that, you can harmonize what the Bible says. But the reason you go about the work of harmonizing it is because of an assumption you make. And that valid assumption you make is the Bible cannot contradict itself. And the reason you make that valid assumption is because God is the ultimate author of the Bible. So that will lead you to do some extra study to put those together. Now, next week, I will give you an example, a couple examples of passages 
that do that. They look like they contradict. You put a little more work into it, turns out they don't. But you put that work into it because you assume they can't because God's the author. And that will then bring us back to Hosea and Matthew. Okay? So don't attack me today for leaving you hanging. That will bring us back to Hosea and Matthew. Because now I look at Matthew and I go, it looks like Matthew is saying that Hosea was predicting something. But I know when I read Hosea, Hosea wasn't predicting nothing. So let me go back to Matthew and see if I got that right. Let me take another look at Matthew and Hosea to make sure I got them both right. And then seek to harmonize those. And that's what we'll look to do next week. Okay? Let's ask the Lord to go with us. Father, thank you for the Lord's day, the Lord's people, the opportunity to be together and to encourage and be encouraged. We thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word and now to be able to talk about how to accurately understand your word. We ask you, Lord, to go with us this week, to ponder the things that that we have learned, to put them into practice in our lives. And we ask you, Lord, to protect us and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.